this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Silicon Valley Pricks Edition. It's Wednesday, March 9th, 2022, and uh, what does that mean? It means my uh, beloved Kate turns 16. Happy birthday, baby. On today's show, The Dropout is a limited on Hulu. It stars Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes. The supposedly Steve Jobs-like visionary behind the company Theranos, which turned out to be a soup-to-nuts fraud. And then Pedro Almodovar returns with the feature film Parallel Mothers about two women whose fates become entwined during their stay in a maternity ward. We do it either way, I suspect, but you can consider it part of our Oscar roundup. Uh, Penelope Cruz has a Best uh, Actress nom, deservedly so, out of this movie. And finally, we will discuss the surprisingly elaborate semiotics of pickup trucks with Slate's own Dan Coyce. Joining me today is Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. Hey, hey. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate and author of the new nonfiction book, Cameraman, about Buster Keaton. Dana. Hello, Stephen. I speak to you from a hotel room in Austin, Texas, where I came to um, to show a Buster Keaton movie and, and sign books. That's fun. Have you You haven't done the event yet, though? Uh, no, it's tonight. I'm just recording here in the hotel room in advance of the event. But I wanted to mention, because I'm on the road now doing something like a book tour, to my surprise. I didn't think I was going to have a book tour, but various institutions have invited me. And so I just wanted to mention to listeners who live in any of these towns that at some point in the coming months, you have a chance to come probably watch a movie and definitely meet me and have me sign your book. And these are some of the cities. Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and Williamsburg, Virginia. Those are the, the cities on the list so far. Oh, that was really cool. Uh, well, break a leg. Shall we uh, make a show? Yes, let's do it. Okay, well, The Dropout is an eight-part limited series now streaming on Hulu, created by Elizabeth Merriweather. She's a veteran of ABC's sitcoms. This one stars Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes, the painfully young entrepreneur who had an idea that with proper technology, you would not need to draw blood. With the proper tech, in other words, you could diagnose across a spectrum of detectable diseases with a single drop from a pinprick. The problem she did not have and never developed the proper technology. What followed was nonetheless a barrage of credulous press, tons of seed capital, just the whole Silicon Valley hype machine coalesced around her and her idea, and it led to a spectacular collapse. This series also stars Naveen Andrews as Holmes's lover and business partner, and William Macy and Stephen Fry, many others, as a wonderful ensemble cast. And let me set it up a little bit in the clip you're about to hear. Elizabeth and her team are about to test the first prototype for their new blood testing machine. Before they fire it up, though, she inspires everybody with a pep talk. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? I'd wrestle an alligator. Today, together, we are taking the first step toward making healthcare accessible to everyone in this country. 
That's why we work so hard. Because this machine and all of us are going to change the world. Here we are. Uh, it's really just a demo, guys. So, uh, you know, we've been testing some blood for sepsis because that seems to be the most reliable test we have so far. Okay? Then you just take the win. He's so modest, right? <laughs> All right, Dana, let me start with you. You know, this is a classic Silicon Valley morality tale. How, uh, how well delivered did you find it? You know, I'm super impressed with this show. I didn't really think that I needed to hear another Elizabeth Holmes tale. I think we have already talked about her once on the show, at least. Even if we haven't, I know that I watched the documentary treatment of her. I think there were two different documentary treatments of this story, if I remember correctly. And in general, there has been, as we've talked about on the show, this wave of dramatizations of scams and grifters and things like that. And so I sort of felt like, okay, this is going to be well-trod territory. But this show really does an, an excellent job at something that's very hard, which is taking a recent event in the press that everybody knows about, dramatizing it in a way that makes you actually care about the characters and not see them as, you know, kind of blown up versions of, of somebody from a reported story. And also in the process of telling this individual fascinating and horrifying story about, you know, tech scams in Silicon Valley. I think it, it braids in a lot of, of critique of American capitalism in a way that does not hammer you over the head. And so I was really impressed overall with the um, with every single performance. Amanda Seyfried obviously kind of owns the whole show and is in every single scene. It's an extremely demanding role to play a very unsympathetic person in a way that you nonetheless feel for her and in some way understand what drives her, even though, you know, her ethics are so, so horrifying. But it isn't just her. I mean, every single role, this is one of those things where they must have done a great pitch to to cast all of these people. But, you know, Laurie Metcalf, Stephen Fry, Naveen Andrews, all of these people in secondary roles as well just are absolutely killing it. Mm, yeah, uh, Julia, um, Dana's right, right? This is not a, whatever else is true about it. It's not a cardboard two-dimensional portrait of a you know, of now what's becoming quickly a kind of folk demon for all our capitalist excesses. It goes very deep with her and it goes wide to the culture of uh, enablers that surrounded her. What did you, what do you make of it? I was really impressed too. I think I had a similar response to Dana of feeling like my baseline level of interest in the, you know, quote unquote, summer of scammers and the various scam stories that have followed. It's just like not my deepest psychological fascination. Um, and I should I, I should disclose here that uh, the podcast upon which this was based, The Dropout, was uh, produced by a friend of mine, and she's an EP on this show, although I don't know how involved she actually was in it. Um, but I think the Amanda Seyfried performance is really amazing, and I think it's supported by writing that allows her to inhabit this crazy character and make her seem three-dimensional. I mean, what she did was so outlandish. She's like born with this core drive, this core ambition. There are these portraits of her in the first episode of her as a teenager saying she wants to be a billionaire and being kind of abrasive and being kind of combative and having that outsized ambition, the way in which it curdles um, and the way in which she, you know, has to battle to try to get what she's trying to get done done and the terrible moral choices she makes along the way are actually like 
not the terrible moral choices, but the fear, the ambition to being underestimated and dismissed as a young woman, the having to think about presentation, like, you know, there, there's like an alternative, you know, millennial female empowerment drama here that, that, that with this like underlying complete lack of moral compass and curdled psychology, it, that's what's so unsettling about it because you find yourself sort of relating to moments within her story and then you're like, but she's Elizabeth Holmes and she's like a world historical fraud and psycho. <laughs> Just, it's a really, really interesting psychological portrait, I think. Safe Reed's ability, I mean, Safe Reed's, this is one of the best performances I probably have ever seen. Um, it's up there, let me put it that way, certainly on television. I mean, she radiates this... Um, kind of crazy intensity. She never seems to blink. She just is widening those eyes and toying with her own voice as the character did, right? Sort of trying to send it to a lower register to sound more authoritative and serious, becoming slowly, beginning as a ball of ambition that so seething she makes you uncomfortable, but developing into what seems like a full-blown psychotic, but it in this incredibly human way. It both goes well far back into her background. I think there is some clue that though she was already built a certain way, there was a somewhat sort of life-instigating event, which is, you know, not unlike Ayn Rand in a completely different set of circumstances whose father was totally emasculated by the Bolsheviks in the sense that his entire livelihood as a successful member of the bourgeoisie was stolen from him overnight. They were forced to go live in a communal apartment. I'm not in the business of humanizing Ayn Rand, but there is a human element to the psychotically pro-free market human being she came. It's, it's powerfully wounding to see your father emasculated by, you know, politics or the workplace or whatever. Her father, Elizabeth Holmes's father, worked for Enron, claimed to not know that it was a fraudulent house of cards, and uh, saw his career at least temporarily destroyed when it all collapsed. Uh, the show makes a big deal of this. It's, it seems to indicate that that her sense of her father's compromised autonomy. Uh, and he has to go hat in hand to William Macy, a neighbor who's got a lot of money, but dubiously. I agree that the critique of capitalism spreads out in every direction, which rescues this from any possible charge of misogyny, you know, i.e. giving in to allowing this one female young woman to take the burden of all of the sins of, uh, of Silicon Valley. Um, what I thought also continues to humanize her throughout the whole thing is that she's in a situation I think all of us has been in. We have a big paper due, a term paper due. We kind of are beginning to sense we have no prayer of finishing on time. And it's just the sword of MFing Damocles hanging over you. And then you get past the <laughs> deadline and you're like, I'm going to email the professor in an hour. And then three days goes by. And she's just... Virtually every episode, she's handed a deadline that you know she's not going to be able... It's vaporware. She's not going to be able to meet the deadline. She just doesn't have it. And it's not sympathy, Dana. It's not right. It's not that... It's not exactly sympathy, but she's been so successfully humanized along the way that you feel for her nonetheless. It's just, it's just an amazing performance in an amazing miniseries. 
Yeah, I feel like we we should shout out the creator because it really is one of those series where it feels like there's a, a unifying vision behind it, right? I think actually the Pam and Tommy show that we talked about a couple of weeks ago had a similar sense of, you know, really excellent casting in every part, but also just a common vision of who these people were and why their story was important now. And uh, and the creator of this, to my surprise, was the creator of New Girl, a show that, you know, also has a very un- unified vision and tone, but an extremely different one. So Elizabeth Merriweather, who's the showrunner and, you know, co-writer on many of these episodes, uh, was the person who created New Girl. And it, to me, very, is very cool that the new New Girl she's looking at is such a very different one from, you know, <laughs> the one we know. There are like two no more different characters in American pop culture than Zoe Deschanel's <laughs> Jess and, and Amanda Seyfried's Elizabeth Holmes. I break for birds. I rock a lot of polka dots. I have touched glitter in the last 24 hours. <laughs> That's range. And it's it's just interesting in terms of gender roles, and I'm curious how you felt about this, Dana. Like, we've talked on the show, or certainly I have, about my resistance to the idea that, like, if only women were in charge, everything would be better. Like, to me, the reason that there should be equality rather than sexist patriarchy is not that women are better at things. It's just that the qualities that are distributed among men are also distributed among women, and women deserve a chance to be heroes and and villains as well like it's just more 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 talent in the talent pool that you got to get into the mix right um but the question of how her gender intersects with her desperation her sense of trappedness and her villainy is really sophisticated i think like i was sort of ready to resist it you know and the ways in which gender makes things difficult to her is not presented as like a pat off the hook excuse but also they're sort of presented as like the difficult lab conditions in which this monstrous specimen like grew in really twisted directions but I was curious what you thought of the the gender stuff in here (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I mean, like the things I was saying before about the the show being in a way a critique of capitalism and techno capitalism specifically, it's, you know, this, it's not, there's not a moment where suddenly the dialogue is just framing those ideas and telling you that, right? I mean, it's woven into the whole story in 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 an effective way. And I think gender kind of works the same way. I mean, among other things, she leverages her gender, right? So it's not just a portrait of her being oppressed by the system of Silicon Valley bros, but of her knowing that the VC people that she's seeking investment money from know that Silicon Valley is a is a nest of bros. And so she is able to leverage the fact that she is an attractive young woman who's the CEO of a company to, to make them feel like they're, you know, somehow inhabiting a more progressive space if they invest in her scam. And that is a pretty complex way to look at how gender operates outside of a simple binary of I'm a woman and I'm oppressed. This is really an accomplished show. I, I, I think we're all kind of more or less pounding the table on it. The dropout, it's streaming now on Hulu. I think three or four. I think the fourth episode will have dropped by the time you hear this. Check it out. And uh, if you see fit, uh, get in touch with us. Tell us what you thought of it. All right, moving on. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? 
Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi point system, they never imagined somebody might try to actually snag it, but a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. All right, before we go any further, typically right around now, we discuss business. Dana, uh, what do you have? Steve, our first item of business is this week's episode of The Me Show. A quick reminder that listeners can still get a deal on the audiobook edition of my new book, Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema, and the Invention of the 20th Century. If you go on Audible and get this book or another place that sells audiobooks, you're going to pay full price. But if you get it on Slate at slate.com slash Dana, you can get it for just $13.99, which is $10 off the list price. So if you're interested in that, go to slate.com slash Dana. Our second item of business is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment, which comes, as it has been a lot lately, I think, from a listener question. A listener named Jen writes in, (laughs) I can't believe we're doing this one. This is so embarrassing. She's wondering if any of us have a celebrity pass with our partners. In other words, is there a celebrity that we are allowed to cheat on our spouses with if the occasion arises? I'm not sure if any of us actually have such arrangements with our partners, but we thought it would be fun to talk about celebrity crushes in general and how attraction to certain celebrities might affect our taste in movies. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to hearing that embarrassing conversation later in the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the Dirt Dishing Slate Plus segment I just described, and you'll also hear members-only programming on lots of other podcasts like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. Most of all, you get unlimited access to all of the great writing on slate.com and you support our magazine and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships really Really matter a lot for Slate, so please, if you can, sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once more, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? Yanis, played by Almodovar Muse, Penelope Cruz, is a successful photographer in Madrid. She's approaching 40. She's single, she becomes pregnant, and decides to have the baby. In her maternity ward, she rooms with a much younger woman, also single, also pregnant. Anna is a teenager who lives with her mother. The two women bond, they vow to remain close, but this is the Almodovarse, pardon me. But what follows is an agonized tragic comedy of loss and recuperation, as only writer-director Pedro Almodovar could deliver it. The film stars, in addition to Cruz, Milena Smit as Anna and Israel Alejalde as Arturo the father of Yanis's infant daughter. Uh, we're going to listen to a clip, the movie's in Spanish. We have a new uh, protocol for this. I think it works, which is just to go ahead and play a foreign language film, just a little bit of it, just to give you the taste. The score in this movie uh, is is uh, remarkable. Uh, That's just something of the tone and feel of it. Um, so here's a short clip. In this scene, the two main characters, Yanis and Ana, just finish up a serious conversation. Uh, you'll hear their voices and also this this wonderful score, Dana by it's Alberto Iglesias, right? Yeah. You must know his work. I mean, I had I looked up who did it because I didn't, and he's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, he's worked with Almodovar forever. The, the score that comes to mind for me, which is one I still put on to, to write to sometimes because it's just like beautiful classical music is his score to, to Volver, the Almodovar movie from a decade or so ago. But this is another of those gorgeous, symphonic, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, but it has an old Hollywood, almost Bernard Herman-esque kind of quality. Great music. Mm. All right, let's listen. Lo siento mucho, Ana. De verdad. Gracias. Bueno, 
Adiós, guapa. Adiós. Adiós, Ana. Julia, let's mix it up. Uh, let's start with you. I don't know about you, but for me, it's like the Marvel Universe. I'll go back into an Almodovar movie with that same avidity, no matter who's in it, what it's what's it about. I cannot wait to return. I have that fanboy attitude towards it. Um, I'm not sure it allows me to be critical of these movies, but we'll get to that. What do you make of this one? The word that comes to mind to me for Almodovar movies is sumptuous, like you just want to be in the world of them, no matter what is happening. And in fact, what happens in them is often quite different tonally. Sometimes it's light and sometimes it's melodramatic and sometimes it's somber. You know, the, the, he, he, he does so many different things and yet his signatures are so recognizable. Among them, casting a succession of fabulous women, some familiar and some not, and reveling in the complications of womanhood in the modern, modern world. And then secondarily, um, just designing a set of interiors that are so awesome looking that you just want to be inside them. Like there's never a home in a Amadavar movie that you're not like, can I live there? Can I live there? I'd also like to live in that one. Nice wallpaper where they get that little hutch thingy on the wall. Um, like I, you know, I want to like shop his movies, which just, I'm just confessing it because I know that's not the most like uh, culturally sophisticated response, but they're so great looking, you know, it's such a visual feast. Um, and then within the feast, he's telling really different stories. This one, I'm so curious to talk about with you, and I, I wish we could talk more about the ending because uh, it it zooms out to encompass the scope of Spanish history and atrocities committed under Franco and connects the very particular melodrama of single motherhood, which concerns the first hour plus of the movie, and kind of connects it with ideas about state atrocity, family memory, um, and kind of the the impossibility of forgetting wrongs. You know, you you watch these performances with a feeling of mounting dread as the plot unfolds, and yet um, it's a generous movie in which the like finer instincts of humanity prevail. Uh, so it's like dread with a, if not a happy ending, a positive ending. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, I was glad I took the journey. I'm curious what you made of it, Dana. I mean, it was on my 10 best list for last year. It's one of the best Almodovars I've seen in years, and I was already a fan of his. So I'm, I mean, I'm pretty much 100% behind. It does try to do things that he's never done before. And, um, you know, I suppose that those things could be seen as somewhat strained connections in that he's weaving together a, a very domestic, intimate, you know, melodrama, basically, a melodrama about these, these two mothers who have a baby at the same time and how their lives intertwine with this much bigger historical story which is not a thing that Almodovar does that much. I mean, he's obviously a deeply Spanish filmmaker and is constantly thinking about, you know, his his country and his place in the world. But I don't think that he has written that I remember, written Spanish history and specifically the Spanish Civil War into a movie as directly as he does in this movie, because there's this plot thread, as I think Steve mentioned, about um, the, the Penelope Cruz character having an ancestor who died in the Spanish Civil War, and she's trying to investigate the circumstances. And that story kind of disappears from the plot for long stretches of time, 
time, and we're hearing instead about these two women and their babies and the men in their lives. But when it comes back up to me, it was always so moving, and it felt so... Um, it felt as if it had been bubbling under the surface the whole time, in a way. And I, I really want to see this again with someone from Spain, because I feel like this is a movie that if you are Spanish and know some of that history and just some of the cultural history of the country, that you would see all kinds of resonances that we maybe don't see as American viewers. But even not seeing all of those resonances, I was completely entranced. I mean, I wept many times during this movie. The ending, I think, is extraordinary. And I would send even people who aren't huge Almodovar heads to this movie because I think it's, it's it's kind of an unusual one in his filmography. Yeah, I, I loved it. I couldn't have loved it more. I mean, as I say, you know, for me, it's Star Wars. I just want to go back, Julia, sort of like you, it sounds like, into that world of either Madrid or Barcelona. Um, but uh, I think this one is especially good. Uh, l- let me give a couple of reasons why its poignancy hit di- very directly to me. The first is, funnily enough, the ac- accident, horrible accident of history that it that it comes out Uh, as the Ukraine crisis is unfolding. You know, I think one thing we may forget a little bit about Almodovar, but it's omnipresent, is that his entire career unfolded in the flowering that happened after the death of Franco. I mean, imagine, first of all, what it's like to grow up in this entirely anachronistic country, along with Portugal, stayed fascist long after the deaths of Mussolini and Hitler into the 1970s. uh, firstly, but then secondly, to grow up a gay man within that and then have it those you know, terrifying restrictions suddenly released, what emerged was this sort of extraordinary humanist, really. I mean, the celebrator and everything he does of freedom. And there's a sense in which all of his movies are political. There's a wonderful quote from Almodovar vis-a-vis one of the characters in this movie, The Mother of Anna, the young teenage unwed mother, who says, oh, I'm apolitical. And Almodovar said, oh, that that means something very specific. When you say you're apolitical in Spain, that means you're of the right. And so there's a way in which the sort of humanist left is 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 animating a, a, a joy at being able to be part of something like a humanist left and a creative class that's unleashed is, is in all of his movies, but it, it is made self-consciously political in this one, I think, in ways that are fascinating and and the tie-in with Ukraine is that in some sense is what they're fighting for. They're fighting to belong specifically to the broader culture of Europe, which Spain uh, joined belatedly. As to the specifics of this movie, as always, you know, um, a, a, a ravishing performance from Penelope Cruz, um, and and a lot of the emo- like very specific emotional weight of the movie falls to her because she's both trying to commit the heroic act of collective memory that involves reckoning with a specific crime attached to the Spanish Civil War and the Franco forces, specifically the fascists. Um, And she's trying to pick through an intensely confused personal situation, which will sort of establish private memory going forward for the next generation, depending on how it gets worked out. And that those two braid together as beautifully, Julia, as they do. I mean, right? It's just, it's just you know, 71-year-old filmmaker in his late phase, having refined all of his techniques and his sensibility to produce something, you know, truly, truly moving and extraordinary. 
Steve, if I could jump in rather than Julia, that just made me think of something that a professor of mine um, said long ago upon watching an Almodovar movie. I think it was The Flower of My Secret. And I didn't see it with him, but he was a professor that I admired tremendously. And he was French, not a professor of French, but a French guy. And uh, and after he saw The Flower of My Secret, which might have been the first Almodovar movie he'd ever seen, he said, C'est du Stendhal. <laughs> Basically, he thought it was like Stendhal on screen, the novelist Stendhal, whose specialty, of course, was to was to braid together the two exact things that you were talking about, you know, kind of the forces of history that bear down on a life and the individual personal expression, you know, of that person's beliefs, right? So this is, to me, as a movie about that. I mean, it's sort of a movie about how the personal is the political, you know, and you see that in the lives of these two women and how they interact with um, historical forces. This is all sounding very vague, I know, because I don't want to reveal the big twists that drive this plot, but it is a true melodrama in the way that yeah. Stendhal used to do them, right? Where you're following the, you know, the heart swells of some individual character and the romantic story of their lives. Uh, but at the same time, it's placed in this setting in which much larger things um, Im- impact them. And you even see that, for example, in the importance of food in this movie, you know, oh, because yes. there's all this, there's this wonderful yeah. scene where Penelope Cruz yeah. teaches the younger mom, played by Milena Smith, how to cook an omelet, you know, a tortilla española, right? That big kind of potato and egg omelet, which is actually very tricky to make well. And Penelope Cruz does this demonstration of it, all the while there's this giant leg of jamón that just sits out on the counter in her beautiful, perfect teal and orange kitchen at all times. And it just seems like that kind of cultural expression of Spain is just as important to Almodovar in this movie as the historical and political one. Yeah, I mean, I think the one, the the thing that I'm still puzzling through is is the central metaphor how it is that the melodrama at the heart of Penelope Cruz's experience for most of the movie connects to the the big historical zoom out at the end and I think there's a way in which some of the choices she makes are supposed to be a, a metaphor for the history of Spain and and the repression of historical memory around atrocities under Franco and like I guess the thing I'd love to talk about at a bar for half an hour is like is Penelope Cruz just too pleasant and lovely to be the right vehicle for for that fear and questioning? Like there are some moments where you wonder what choices she's going to make and you're filled with dread that she might make bad ones, but um, but they're kind of scant and fleeting because how could anything go so terribly wrong in that sumptuous kitchen? I'll take the flip side of that though, because you know maybe you sense that she'll make the choices you indicate, but that the cost to her will be agonizing. And I think, you know, it doesn't, I don't, I don't think that her winsomeness sacrifices depth of feeling here. I thought it enhanced it. You don't want this potentially awful thing to befall this kind of extraordinary person. Um, but anyway, I, I love a show of ours where we pound the table twice for something. Enthusiasm in this dark time is just so much better than caviling and dismay. Um, all right, it's Parallel Mothers. Uh, as of now, you uh, have to go see it in a movie theater, but that's the perfect place for it. And I think, as I said before, Penelope Cruz, justly nominated for Best Actress. Check it out. We loved it. All right, moving on. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening to this show right now are probably multitasking in some way or another. You might be driving, cleaning, exercising, maybe grocery shopping. But as long as you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing right now, and that's getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. 
It's easy, and you can save money by doing it right now from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, for our final segment, we're joined by Dan Coy's OG friend of the program, OGFOP. Uh, Dan, welcome back. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I note Dan, that you are the author of How to Be a Family, a co-author of The World Only Spins Forward, an oral history of angels in America. But Dan, there's a third entry here that I, I find puzzling and maybe even a little dismaying. You have a novel forthcoming from Vintage Contemporaries in 2023. Is that is that a misprint? That is a misprint. I have a novel called Vintage Contemporaries oh, forthcoming <laughs> from Harper though, in 2023. But that's even better. Okay. Well, there's a. That's a. For first, that's just a fantastic title. It's a callback to those old. What was his name? Morgan Entrickin. That series that he published with McInerney and Brett Easton Ellis. And uh, in fact, Morgan Entrickin was in charge of Grove Atlantic in the late '80s. Vintage Contemporaries was launched by Gary Fiskajan and was wow. made famous when uh, it's fir- the first book in the series was Bright Lights, Big City, and they sort of spun <laughs> off from there. I mean, we haven't even started our segment, and I've been hilariously wrong three or four times. Um, this is uh, this is quite the auspicious start here. Anyway, you're actually here to talk about something other than you know your talents and my idiocy. You write in uh, your latest piece for Slate. I'm not saying you're a murderer if you own a gigantic truck, aka a pickup truck, which is what the piece is about. I'm saying. You're a manslaughterer. I love, Dan, that you returned to Slate from a six-month book leave and just painted a gigantic Slate pitch target on your uh, forehead. Go, tell me about this piece. I was loaded for bear after six months off on book leave. Um, yeah, I uh, I have found myself frustrated frequently by the, the, the argument around... Uh, road fatalities and the way that it constantly, it seems to me, is framed as a function of, oh, drivers are more distracted or drivers are more aggressive because of the pandemic or pedestrians are looking at their phones. Uh, When it seems to me that there's an obvious thing to point at in how much more dangerous the roads seem for everyone, for bikers, for pedestrians, and for other drivers, which is enormous pickup trucks. And it all came to a head 
um, the other day when a journalist named AJ Latrace posted a couple of photos of himself at an auto show. You know, these auto shows in big convention centers where the, the car companies introduce their latest models. And he was standing in front of a, a new um, GMC Sierra. And the author, AJ Latrace, is over six feet tall. And the the top of the grill of the Sierra is exactly at a level with his neck, um, which is to say it's it's almost five and a half feet tall. And the new lines of pickup trucks over the last 10 to 15 years have gotten progressively taller and substantially heavier. And no surprise, they've gotten incredibly more dangerous for everyone they come into contact with, whether they're pedestrians they hit, who then get hit on the head and face and pulled under the truck as opposed to hit on the body or other cars that they hit, which then get crushed into tiny pieces. And so I wanted to write a piece that tried to lay bare the real calculus that you ought to be thinking about if you are buying one of these gigantic pickup trucks, which is that you are willfully purchasing something that makes you a lot more likely to kill another human being. Well, Dan, I was reading this piece with dread as someone who does not own a pickup truck, but does like to be a little higher on the road than in a mm-hmm. Honda Accord. And then I saw that there was a sentence, you know, two thirds of the way down where you let the drivers of light SUVs off the hook, because actually those are getting smaller and lower to the road. Uh, so since you've solved my sins, great piece. <laughs> Uh, they are getting smaller and lower to the road. They're also more likely to be crushed by a pickup truck. It is worth noting they are still 28% more likely than another kind of car to kill someone when they hit them. All right. You did put that caveat in, too. Um, but I guess, you know, there there is like a, I don't know if it's the tragedy of the commons or what the right philosophical metaphor is for it, but like, if everyone else's car is bigger, you kind of want your car to be bigger, to be a little bit higher off the road so you can see over the other big, huge cars and, and uh, you know, maybe... And so you can be safer when you run into those other big, huge cars. Right. Yeah, and it's, I mean, what it is, is it's tragedy of the market, it seems like. Dan, I'm curious whether, as somebody who drives a lot in your daily life, this is something that comes up on the road. I mean, this seems to have been inspired, as you said, by this this photo that this journalist posted at a trade show. And uh, and that is, in fact, an enraging photo that just equates sort of size and bulk with, you know, desirability in a car. But is this something that you also see experientially, just driving around your neighborhood and your city? Oh, yeah. Well, I live in a suburb. Um, outside DC and it's a pretty affluent suburb and the people who live here are not engaged in farming or contracting. Sometimes they like to have a big tow capacity because they are carrying around their giant boats. But in general, what I see in my community are a bunch of gigantic pickup trucks and monster SUVs, uh, being driven around to drop kids off at school, sometimes being driven around by teenagers to get themselves to school uh, or to be like driven to Starbucks to pick up a latte. And, you know, each time I see one of them often driven carelessly or uh, with the kind of confidence that you can get when you know that you are essentially bulletproof, uh, it, it makes me a little bit terrified for me and for my kids walking around and for my neighbors who are, you know, subject to the the violence that these things can instill. And that's one of the things that I tried to get at in the piece that as in my community, the 
the vast majority of people who own these kinds of trucks in the United States are not using them because they are farmers hauling around bales of hay. They are buying them because they want to feel safer or they want to feel bigger on the road or because they just like being intimidating. Um, so, you know, according to a research firm, about 30% of truck owners, owners of these giant trucks, actually go off-road more than once a year. And about 35% of truck owners never, ever put anything in their truck beds, never actually fill those truck beds with the stuff you theoretically need to haul, which is why you bought a gigantic pickup truck in the first place. I mean, here I have to jump in. I li So I live in a rural community that's filled with pickup trucks. And over the years, uh, I've noticed a couple of patterns that I think are worth sharing. The first is that, you know, in my community, who has absolutely the smallest pickup trucks? It's the, the farmers. farmers. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the landscapers. <laughs> and, but typically, and because farming has so much trouble reproducing itself generationally, both for financial reasons and the, you know, tends to run at a loss, you know, and, and a break even basis. If you're lucky, kids are moving away, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't really pay. So, um, farmers tend to be older here. Uh, they know what they need out of a truck. It has pure utility. It's, and, and I would go further and say it's because their masculinity is still bound up in and expressed through work, the actual work they do. So it's not an especially insecure masculinity, whereas the bigger they get, the less they do, the less, you know, the, the less they're actually used in a, in a, in a specifically work oriented or any, any, you know, any kind of utilitarian way. Uh, and then it just becomes, you start to trend in the direction of a pure act of aggression. You, it is an incredibly efficient signaler of uh, of hostility. Hostility to people like me and Priuses who are latecomers to this community. So impinging on my consciousness all the time are the, and into my lane and on and on and on are these just fantastically uselessly big trucks. You know, one theme, Dan, in this show, as I'm sure you remember, has been the end of men inaugurated by the great Atlantic essay by Hannah Rosen's late alumna. And uh, she uh, she really nailed it, but what I kept thinking as we talked to her about it and read that 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 sort of in its way in retrospect horrifically prescient piece was men are not gonna go quietly. The dissociation of especially white masculinity, cishet masculinity in the United States becoming dissociated from specifically traditionally macho forms of work, you know, coal mining. To a degree, farming, I would argue that one's pretty gentle, but on and on and on was going to result in this symbolic over-masculinization in other realms. And now we see it, it's just the single most prophetic thing we've ever talked about, this constant negative externalizing of, of inutility, really, to the point where doing something for your community on the part of an individual has become psychologically impossible because somehow that somehow that completes the the emasculation. So wearing a mask in order to prevent endangering others, no matter how you assess your own risk, you increase the risk of others. I agree, it's a market failure, a tragedy of the market. This needs to be regulated. It started with Reagan. They wanted to bring back the U.S. auto industry and they wanted to uh, flatter the the uh, gas companies by returning 
gigantic cars to the American landscape, but nobody wanted these old nostalgic boats with the big fins a- anymore. So the the key was redefining what counted as a truck. Uh, uh, and lo and behold, we got SUVs and these boat-like uh, uh, trucks. I share completely. I mean, let's call it what it is. It's it's a kind of rage at these things. They're they're awful for all of us. Well, and the the lack of concern for others that you talk about is manifest not only in the truck's marketing and and design. You know, the designers of these trucks talk specifically about how the grills are meant to be intimidating to make people feel afraid that the truck is going to come after them, but also in the way that they're currently regulated. Right now in the United States, unlike in many other countries, safety ratings and statistics for cars are based solely on how safe people inside the car are in the event of a collision and have nothing to do with how safe people outside the car are in the event of a collision. So when you talk about trucks like this, which people buy for their quote unquote safety, what they're referring to is their own safety when in fact they're markedly over 100% more likely to kill someone else if you collide with them. Yeah, I mean, well, well over 100%. You have 159% more likely than other cars to kill another driver if you're in a crash, which is really stunning that the auto industry is just going forward with those kind of stats and continuing to, to make these big cars. But maybe that brings me to a, a slightly bigger than this piece question I wanted to ask you about just writing a polemic like this. I mean, I don't know if this piece is, has gotten monster traffic. It should get monster traffic because, well, it's about monster traffic, I guess. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's a great piece. But it's in a particular mode. I mean, it's not just that it's it's a polemic. It's a second person polemic. And I really admired that about it. It's just um, it's really bracingly written because you are talking directly using the, 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 the framing of you at this hypothetical truck owner. And in particular, this really hit home for me in the paragraph where you talk about frontovers. I wasn't familiar with that word before, but it's, you know, when somebody um, in a, who's parked in a driveway or a parking lot accidentally rolls over someone in front of them. And as you write, most of the victims of frontover deaths are babies between 12 and 23 months. 80% of those deaths involve one of these big cars. And then the really sad statistic here is that in 70% of those frontovers, it's, it's the child of the person behind the wheel, which makes sense, right? It's their driveway. Anyway, I, I'm going off into numbers here, but I just wanted to to ask you what how it felt to be addressing this hypothetical manslaughtering truck owner, and you know why you chose that form to to cast your polemic in. Well, it's very emotionally gratifying because it was the it was the thing that I wish I could say to every truck that roars down my street at you know 48 miles an hour. Um, that that scares me all the time. Um, so in that way, it's very satisfying to write a piece this way when you take a thing that has been bothering you forever and a kind of person who has been bothering you forever and you feel like you can address them directly. Now, does the piece actually address those people directly when it's published in Slate, a magazine that you know, has some overlap, presumably, with the audience that buys these kinds of trucks, um, but also, you know, has a, a an often quite liberal audience of the type that is is the choir to whom I am preaching. I don't know. I I know that I definitely got uh, the largest number of angry randos sending me Facebook messages telling me that I'm a piece of shit since I wrote about Joker, um, which struck me as. <laughs> Uh, like a notable correlation. I do think that the pleasure of writing a piece like this 
is in its emotional fulfillment. I don't know whether it changes minds. I certainly knew that the kinds of pieces I was reading before weren't changes in changing anyone's minds, the kinds of pieces that were very, you know, sympathetic or um, or measured or, you know, gracious in a way that this is not gracious. And so that is why I wrote the piece this way. It seems to me that the market is part of this question. Car makers are going to keep making cars bigger and bigger and bigger because that is what people want. So the only way to turn that around, short of regulation, as Steve says, which seems unlikely to come anytime soon, is to change what it means to own one of these big cars. Mm-hmm. And that means shunning and and embarrassing the people who own them. And so I don't know if that can happen long term, but it seems to me like arguments like this in the real world are the thing that can maybe make that happen. Mm-hmm. Here, here. All right. Well, we unfortunately are out of time, but Dan, uh, thank you so much for coming back to the show. And let me re- reiterate, you've got a novel uh, written, an extraordinary life achievement in and of itself, but it's uh, called Vintage Contemporaries. It's going to be out in 2023. I cannot wait for a galley. Uh, very excited for it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you got? Steve, for the second week in a row, it's my daughter who inspired my endorsement. This was actually inspired by me trying to help her with her homework for her world history class. She's taking AP world history as a sophomore in high school. And I really hope her teachers are not listening. It's not the teacher's fault, but the curriculum for this class is just kind of a mess. Like they're basically covering all of world history over several thousand years and and cramming it in this very fact-based way and whatever. It's just not a great example of history pedagogy. Again, probably not the teacher's fault, but the educational systems. And so I was looking for resources online where you can understand world history in relation to other parts of the world and that, you know, history is not just told in these strange siloed ways. And so I happened upon this site called timemaps.com, which I'm still exploring. I'm not quite sure of all the things it can do. Also, some of the things that it can do are locked behind a paywall and some aren't. But if you go to timemaps.com, among the things you can do are look at a map of the world, over a space of 3,000 years and click on different places. So say you wanted to see what was happening in India in 2000 BC. You would have a way of going to that place on the map, sliding to that place on the timeline, and getting a sort of little historical summary of what's going on politically and culturally in that place, and the same way all over the world. And again, I think some of this more desirable content may be locked behind a paywall, so I don't want to send people to a place where they have to become a subscriber, but you can get quite a lot of world history just from going to the free part of the timemaps.com website. And whether or not you're helping a kid learn world history, it's just interesting to explore. Oh, that sounds incredibly cool. Julia, what do you have? I just want to recommend a good Instagram account. The account is called The Sussmans. It describes itself as original hospitality industry memes. And it's basically just they post on Instagram, I don't know, like five to 10 memes a day from the perspective of like, harried workers in the hospitality industry about how brutal it's been to run restaurants during COVID. 
Um, and I, I don't know how to describe it other than as like a triumph of, of editorial acumen. Like, I don't know anything, you know, I, I, I worked in a bakery as a teenager, haven't worked in a restaurant, haven't worked in food service since the nineties. Like, I don't know anything about front of house, back of house culture, any, you know, anything really other than like books I've read. Um, and yet somehow the memes feel very inside, like they would be really pleasing to people who are in this culture and very revealing and edifying to someone outside this experience, but who's interested in and empathetic toward what uh, people in restaurants have gone through in the last couple of years. I don't know. It's just really funny. It makes me laugh every day. Like, I'm sure many of our listeners have had the experience of following an Instagram account and then not wanting to click through its 6,000 stories or its many carousels of posts and finding them tiresome. And like, what can I say? Editorial acumen. Like every day it comes up in my feed. I click through them all. Most of them make me laugh. It's kind of funny. It has this sardonic, modern, meme tone, and I recommend it. That's the Sussman's. Uh, that sounds very cool. Um, okay, so I'm gonna. This is. I'm gonna go kind of topical. There's the Guardian long read uh, edited by my friend David Wolf is terrific. They have an especially on point one uh, up right now. It's uh, about um, if you're kind of wondering about the deeper motivations behind the Ukraine conflict and does do people really mean what they say exactly what their uh, other motivations or ulterior motivations might be putin's especially uh this is a tremendously good piece and then it 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 but it comes at it from such a specific angle which is the buying off of the uh of the british elite class london especially by uh russian and or Russian-Ukrainian oligarchs. And it tells the story of uh, one in particular, Dmitry Firtash, who kind of laundered his reputation and his money in London um, and got everyone to sort of sing and dance to his tune. But along the way to, to exposing that corruption, it also gives you some sense of specifically the dependency between the Russian uh, gas industry and Ukraine as a territory, and and how important it was for Putin to have essentially a surrogate thug in charge of the Ukraine, which he constantly over the last twenty years has tried to install and keep there against these revolutions on the part of people who do not want this. The Ukrainian people who overwhelmingly do not seem to want this alignment with Russia, the money and the blood money then courses below a lot of you know kind of oddly inflated rhetoric about the Russification of, you know, the reunification of Russian-speaking people under this, you know, new kind of empire that Putin is imagining. There's a nuts and bolts, and I think at the end of the day, kind of economically and uh, a driven reason for this horrendous act of violence. I think it gets at that too. Anyway, I, it's by Oliver Bullock, whose specialty, an Englishman whose specialty is talking about how London from a real estate point of view and various other political point of views has sold itself off to the highest bidder, um, many of whom are Russian oligarchs. It's a very, very, very good read. It's in the Guardian long read, Gas-Powered Kingmaker, How the UK Welcomed Putin's Man in Ukraine. Check it out. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Dana, as always, a serious pleasure. That was really good. Yeah, good show, Steve. We actually loved all three of the things we were talking about this week, which is, it doesn't happen every time. 
the best. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. Please email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music is by Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. And our producer is Cameron Drews. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, let's uh, hang out soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.